Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Today, I talk with Michael Clinton, the publishing lion. Michael is really my kindred spirit in this journey to redefine our third acts. He just published a book called Roar Into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late, which offers a playbook for how and what to do in the second half of your life. Does that sound familiar? What I love, though, about Michael's story, unlike my own, is that he didn't let any grass grow underneath him when he retired from his 40-plus year career in publishing. Not only did he immediately start the interviews for his book, but he also acted on his own advice, going back to school to earn his master's in nonprofit management and philanthropy at Columbia, New York. He has more big plans in front of him, from founding a social benefit corporation to running on Mount Everest. Ready to be inspired? Because I sure was. All right, Michael, welcome to Third Act and congratulations on the publication of your recent book. Is this like your 10th book or so? Yeah, it's actually my 11th book, but you know, I did eight books yeah, eight books of photography and wrote two other sort of uh, books prior to this, but this is the first book in this in this subject area. Okay. Well, I'm going to come back to this book, but want to make sure our listeners have a sense of sort of your first and second act. So, your first act was at the University of Pittsburgh. And your first job at DNR, which is a menswear trade journal. How did you find DNR, and is that what you expect to be doing coming out of college? Well, I was the uh, publisher of my university newspaper. So when I decided I wanted to be in publishing, you know, where all the action was was New York City. So that's where I headed. And you know, in the beginning, I had a hard time finding a job because I had no contacts and I had like sixty dollars in my pocket and a right a couch to sleep on for two months, and you know. <laughs> I ended up taking a couple of uh, side jobs before I got my first publishing job, but um, I just made a cold call on the editor of this daily um, this daily newspaper, business reporting newspaper, and he gave me an assignment and he, he hired me. And so I was very happy to get my first sort of journalism job in New York City at the age of 22. And what did you cover in, at DNR? Well, what I covered was the emerging active sports industry that was just happening. There was a little company called Nike that was just kind of a young company, you know, and um, the whole active sports world was being redefined and Reebok and Nike and other new companies. And so I would fly all over the country and interview, you know, interview CEOs of, of these new companies as well as retail. I mean, it was great. It was amazing to, to meet all of these people. Uh, you know, meeting Phil Knight in his office, you know, one-on-one was um, a very special thing in those days. Um, so I got a good uh, a good baptism by fire and, you know, meeting all these, you know, these captains of industry. Yeah. Well, so take us sort of your second act. Take us through a brief tour of your second act in publishing. So I did that for a while. Um, and then I jumped fence to go to the publishing side because I, I had this thing in my head that I wanted to be the publisher of, of a big magazine. And someone said, well, you have to learn how to sell advertising. And it was kind of the last thing on my list of things I wanted to do. But I ended up doing it and ended up really loving it. And I, I worked for a, a sport magazine that that same company launched to cover that industry because it had gotten so big. I did that for a few years. And then I got a call from the then publisher of GQ asking me if I wanted to come over to that, that magazine. And so I jumped at that. And a few short years later, um, you know, after a lot of hard work and timing and luck, 
I found myself as the youngest publisher in the industry when I became the publisher of GQ at 34. And then I sort of climbed the publishing ranks from there. And I just finished, capped off a a 42-year magazine publishing career where I was the president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines. I had the great honor of launching Oprah's Magazine, Food Network, HCTV. We publish uh, everything from good housekeeping to town and country, print, digital, social. So about 25, 26 titles, all household names for your listeners. Yeah. So I'm a magazineaholic and it just, it's killing me every time I go to the grocery store because there's fewer and fewer magazines. And I, I will read them digitally, but I prefer them in print. I mean, what do you, what do you think the future of both digital and print magazines is? Print magazines are primarily supported predominantly by advertising. And the advertising model is shifting to digital, as you know, from all things print and even uh, broadcast television. So we have an extraordinarily big digital business. So a lot of our magazines have very robust digital sites and a lot of advertising there. The difference is print magazines get subscription revenue and most digital properties don't. But the print magazines, you know, are still alive and well. They're just smaller businesses. And I think, you know, certainly in my lifetime, print magazines will always be there. There will be fewer of them because it's the weeding out process. But those who have great audience connections will do, will continue to do very well. And so I think it's going to be a mix of print and digital and social media platforms, which is, and e-commerce. We're doing an enormous amount of e-commerce off of our brands digital platforms you know a brand like good housekeeping has a huge e-commerce initiative where we get an affiliate fee in sending someone to amazon or walmart or wherever we send them so after 42 years of a spectacular career why did you decide to leave then well you know i always think you should leave when you're on top and i've always i've always admired people who did that don't overstay your welcome or become sort of a you know, a, <laughs> a vegetable that is uh, beginning to rot. Um, and I, you know, I made the decision that it was just, it was a spectacular run and it was just time for a next chapter. And, you know, if you're, if you're 60 and healthy, you can live another 30 years if you take care of yourself. I mean, it is not our parents' um, sort of retirement, if you will. There's a long arc of future possibilities. So I started planning a year or so in advance much like the 40 people who I interviewed in this book, they all started a year plus in advance thinking about their next, their next pivot. And for me, you know, I wanted to write this book for, for a variety of reasons, which we can get into. I actually went back to school and got a master's degree at Columbia University, which was a whole other experience. Going back to school in your 60s is always kind of intriguing. And, you know, decided that, you know, at some point I was going to become an entrepreneur and launch another, launch a business. And so I think that what we do is we, as we get, as we are living longer, you know, our, our original thought process is we make, we need to make our lives smaller and wind down. And my thesis is you need to make your life larger and wind up. Let's talk about your book because it's uh, just recently out. It's called Roar into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. I was looking at the description in Amazon and it says, discover how to make the second half of your life happy and productive with this perceptive and inspiring guidebook that will help you achieve your dreams to get more out of life, whether or not retirement is in your future goals. 
So I love that description because that's exactly what I need, which is which is why I love talking to you. So what inspired you to write this book now? I know you just said you've been you've been thinking about it, but something must have tripped inside of you to say, I'm gonna stop writing about travel and photography and I wanna write, put this book together. How come? Yeah, yeah. You know, I started to do when I was, you know, sort of a year away from stepping out of the day to day job, I started to do some research as to what was written out there just to sort of see, you know, what might inspire me. And what I found was a lot of it was very downbeat. It was about getting older and, you know, you know, slowing down and, you know, moving to a retirement state and walking the beach. I was like, okay, I need to turn this on its head. Because what we're seeing is people in their 60s, 70s, even 80s are leading these enormously exciting and productive lives. And this whole script is being rewritten by, I call the group of them, the reimagineers. They're they're redefining what a 50 plus life can be as opposed to an old fashioned script that is no longer really relevant. And, you know, those boomers, they love to change everything up. And so I think they will lead the pack and the next generations will follow because, you know, there's a great stat. There are 90,000 100-year-olds right now in the U.S. And in the year 2060, yeah, 90,000. In in the year 2060, in the year 2060, it's projected there will be 590,000. And in the year 2100, it is projected there will be 5.3 million people. So... A hundred-year-old life is not going to be the novelty that it is to us today. Now, obviously, not everyone's going to have that good fortune, but, you know, there is a lot of change happening because at 50, you, you may have another 50 years ahead of you. And so that's a lot of time to, to do something that's really productive and exciting that turns you on. Tell us a little bit about the people you talked to and sort of some of the trends that you found in these 40 folks that you, that you spent some time with. Yeah, they, they were amazing role models for all of us. There, there were people who, you know, there's sort of two camps. There, there are the people who are at midpoint and say, you know, I'm really on the right path and I'm really happy and I want to continue evolving and having experiences and that's great. But there are also a lot of people who are at midpoint who are saying, I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. I'm not happy in my career. I'm not happy in my relationship. And all of these people made a hundred, I call it a 180 degree pivot. In other words, they weren't a banker and they became a consultant to banking. They were, in one instance, a woman who was a book editor, and at 53, she decided she wanted to become a doctor. Well, that's a big, you know, switch, obviously. And she dealt with, you know, ageism in that process. And she's now a doctor today in her 60s. You know, um, another person who was, he was an investment banker, MBA type, and he was uh, very unhappy that he was in that role for 25 years and he decided to step out he got a degree in adolescent education and he teaches math in the inner city schools and so you know a lot of this process was people going deep inside themselves understanding where their dissatisfaction was like i said it might have been in career or personal life or lifestyle and making you know having the courage to make the big the big change. And so the book has a lot of their inspirational stories and also a lot of tools and resources that people can use to put in an action for themselves. How'd you find the people that you interviewed? 
Yeah, some of them um, through word of mouth. I also hired a research assistant and she went out and scoured the, the world, so to speak. We found people in, so most of them are in the US. We have people from Australia and the UK and Ireland and uh, Italy. So we have a, a representation uh, you know, outside the US, but, the, but most of them are the US and she did the research to find them. On this podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about these loss of identity. How did the people yeah. you interviewed get over their loss of identity, and what did they have to say about it? Any tips? It, it's such a it's such an important topic. The problem that many people have is in their, if, especially if you have a, a great career, professional life, you have a seat that you sit in that affords you a lot of interesting access. I mean, I think about my own seat. I mean, you know, I had a phenomenal seat that I sat in that gave me huge access to many, many exciting things. But if you wrap yourself up in your professional identity only, you run the risk of losing your identity when you step out of that seat. And so one of the chapters in the book is a concept called life layering, where you're layering throughout your life different things that are of relevance and interest to you so that when you step out of that seat you have a an identification that is and you know in my instances in my instance i'm an adventure traveler i am a philanthropist i am a marathon runner i am a writer i am etc cetera, etc cetera. and so you don't get completely wrapped up in what you did you get focused on who you are and I think the people, not only my own story, but the people I interviewed were very conscious of that. They really spent time cultivating other aspects of their lives to have a fuller identification as to who they are, who they are as a person. Did some of them start later in life? So I'll take myself as an example, which is somewhat the reason I'm doing this podcast. So I wasn't doing much layering while I was working and had my three kids. And so right. I retire. I'm like, okay, now what? I didn't really have that many hobbies. I have more now. So yeah. I assume you talk to people who kind of came upon things after they pre-tired, retired. How did they figure those things out? Yeah, it's a good, you know, a good example of that is I hate, the, you know, the word retire, like a lot of other words in our, in our culture have to be banished because you can rewire and you, you rewire into many other things that you may want to do. But one example was a woman who was a writer. Or she, let me back up. She was a sales executive for many, many, many years. And in her mind, she had always wanted to be a writer. She had you know, dabbled in writing her whole life. And it was sort of always there. We all have this. I always say to people, go back to your younger self. What was it that you left on the shelf? And how do you pick that up? And she would say, you know, when I was in college, I wrote a lot and I would write when I was in my young adulthood. But then, you know, I got married, my kids, I was working, you know, I kind of lost that. So in her 60-ish, she decided that she was going to get serious about writing. And she took some courses. She took some online courses. She went to some, this is pre-COVID, she went to some conferences. She did a master class with Dan Brown because she wanted to write, you know, mystery, intrigue novels. And she finally sat down and focused on it, and she wrote a novel. And as she said, she had over 150 rejections. <laughs> she kept the spread. She kept the spreadsheet, <laughs> but she was she was determined. She used her sales skills, you know, to keep going at it. And she ended up selling her first book. She's now 67-ish, and she has written five books. 
And she said, for the rest of my life, I am going to be a novelist. And she completely re recast herself as a novelist. And, you know, she was, you know, 60-ish when she, when she did it. So I think, you know, you might know the book, When the Crawdaddy Sings. You know, Delia, Delia Owens, who wrote that, it was her first novel at 70 and became a huge bestseller. Frank McCourt wrote Angela's Ashes when he was in his 60s and won the Pulitzer Prize. So that was his first book. So you can pick up on a creative gene and the beauty of, of being a writer or a painter or, you know, a sculpture or whatever your thing is, is you can do it for the rest of your life because there's no reason why you can't. So she's saying, you know, if I can write novels for the next 20 years, I'll be really happy. So you're giving me hope that my career in musical theater can be rekindled. So I'm not, sure, I'm not sure Broadway's in the cards for me, but, but this is definitely giving me some hope. Um, never on, we talk also about ageism on the podcast and how did some of the folks, you know, particularly like the doctor you mentioned, how did they combat yeah. it and what did you see any trends there? Yeah, well, you know, we have governmental, corporate, institutional ageism that was created you know, re retirement as we know it was a, was a construct built in the 1930s, as you know. And it was also, also built at a time when the life expectancy was, you know, early 60s. And Social Security and all of the things that we, that we know of. And what happened as you flash forward, none of, the, none of the policies have kept pace with the changing population. PwC, the big uh, accounting firm, did a study. Only 8% of corporations have age as part of their DEI policy, which is frightening. I mean, hopefully that's changing in a more enlightened world we're in at the moment. But I think that people, you know, talk to any 50 plus year old and they'll tell you how they confronted some level of ageism, especially in their, in their, in their company. And so we have this, you know, in our, in our culture, we have words like age appropriate instead of person appropriate you know, which is because you can do many things at, at, at many ages. The, the woman, Stephanie, who was becoming a doctor, none of the American medical schools would accept her. You know, only one or two had the guts to say, well, you know, they didn't say it directly as it was your age, but it was sort of the implication. So she ended up doing an end run and went to a Caribbean medical school where it was not an issue. But I also interviewed a woman who was in her mid-60s who was in nursing school and she got into the nursing school, she finished the program, and now she's about to go out into the workplace at 67 to be hired as a newly minted nurse. And, you know, the good news there is there's an enormous amount of shortage of nurses, as you may know. But um, I, I always like to say that one of my great honors was before I left the day-to-day, -day, I promoted a 70-year-old woman and expanded her role and said, Carol, I, you know, I hope you'll work as long as you want to, because you're the kind of person that we need as role models. So I think you have to, you know, learn new, learn new skills. You know, in the case of the magazine business, the people who did not learn digital were left behind. And the people who jumped into digital to learn that in addition to the print world, they're the ones who, you know, thrived and, and continue to grow. So I think you have to be cognizant of new skills and be a lifelong learner and a lifelong student to learn new things as you're going along. That will help combat some of the ageism out there.
as a lifelong learner, you just finished a degree at Columbia. What was it like to go back to school? What did you major in, so to speak? How was it taking a right. test again? Tell us about that experience and why you did it. You know, first of all, I love I love learning, so I love school, and so I was I'm really interested in the nonprofit uh, sector. I'm on multiple nonprofit boards. I have a small foundation that some friends and I started. So I'm I'm really interested in the sector. It's going through a lot of change. And and by the way, the the you may know this, but the the over the next twenty years will be the largest transfer of generational wealth in the history of the world. The baby boomers will be transferring sixty trillion dollars worth of assets to the next generation. And I'm hoping that many of the next generation, as well as the boomers, while they're alive, give a lot of money to social impact and nonprofits and help solve a lot of the societal issues that that we have. But I wanted to learn more about it. So it was a 12 course program. And I said, I'll take one or two courses and see if I like it. And I, I fell in love with it. So it was a master's in nonprofit philanthropy. Taking the tests, you know, I went back to my younger self and sweated out a few, you know, things in the beginning. I loved writing the papers. I developed a business plan for a social purpose business that I'm hoping to launch next year. So it taught me, you know, some great, gave me some great tools there. You know, I just gave a keynote speech at a, the American Marketing Association on trends in nonprofit marketing. So I'm starting to do, you know, some talking and some speaking. But it was, you know, what's, what's great is that if you're in mid, midlife, there are, there's a lot of money around to get Pell Grants and federal grants. A lot of states, if you're 60 or older, you can go to the university for free. Some states, you, if you have low income, you can go for free. So there's this, this constant access to learn new things. You don't have to go get a degree. You know, if you like history, go learn all about English history or whatever your, whatever your thing is. Just keep your mind going because it's a great way to, you know, stay nimble and stay stay alert. So with your degree, you're going to launch a some sort of social impact business. Yes, yes. So there's a, a there's a new model that is called a a B Corp, a benefit corporation, which unlike the traditional 501c3 nonprofit, a benefit corp you can take profit out, so you can have investors and they can take a piece of profit out but you have to be committed to a social purpose set of, of principles. So it might be food insecurity. It could be, you know, employment for, for challenged within challenged communities. It can be sustainability environmental, but you have to make a commitment and you get something called the B lab certification, which shows that in fact, you're committed to donating a portion of your profits to these initiatives. So there are many of them now that are emerging. You might know Warby Parker, the eyewear company. They're, they're, they're a benefit corp. And so this is an exciting new model that is emerging in a sort of a hybrid between traditional business and nonprofits. And so, you know, it's a, it's a really exciting time. And so I'm really uh, turned on to that whole idea because I think we all need to find ways to contribute and to give back. And whatever your version is of that, that's great. But this is a new new version that I'm really excited about. Oh, that's really cool. I teach a class at the University of Washington on nonprofit board leadership. So I'm just taking a note. Are you that. I do. Yeah. So either I'm going to call you to come and talk about this or oh, yeah. I'm going to figure yeah. out a way to get this, weave this into the class. Oh, yeah. No, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So what's next with the book? It's just launched. So, the next book? Yeah. Well, this book, this book, 
Yeah, this book launched in early September. So it's still very much, very much alive in terms of being fresh. It's gotten an enormous amount of coverage, which is great. We hit number one on Amazon in terms of self-help books for 2021. That was exciting. And so I think what, you know, for the next few months, I'm just going to let that, the book sort of evolve. I'm out doing talks. I've done a variety of talks. I was at the Harvard Club last week. I did YPO, which you might be familiar with. I just signed with the Speakers Bureau to take the message out, you know, in 2022. But what I'm really hoping to do is to now build some kind of a community from the, the, the thesis of the book, which will be roll into 2022 and beyond. And then I'll decide if there should be a Roar 2.0 or, or whatever, but we haven't gotten that far yet. titled this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, and clearly you're never going to be done. So uh, so you got your degree, but what else do you see? What, what aren't you done with yet? Well, I've had the good fortune of being to 124 countries around the world. I was just in Ethiopia before the pandemic hit. You know, for a working class kid from Pittsburgh, you know, I've lived a life that was far beyond my own expectations. So you know, I hope to travel more globally. I still run a marathon a year. I've ran seven marathons on seven continents. So I celebrated my 60th birthday by running a marathon on Antarctica. That's one for the ages. So I hope to, you know, run more, run more marathons. I'll build out Roar. I hope to do the social purpose business, which is good. The, the social purpose business is going to be a, a wine uh, as in red wine, as in Malbec, uh, in Argentina. So some friends and I uh, have a small boutique vineyard in Argentina. We've been producing wine since 2011, but a separate entity, since I know that area fairly well, I'm hoping to create a separate entity and a separate label that will be, um, our purpose will be sustainable farming, employing, I want it to be an all-female workforce from top to bottom because it is a male-dominated industry, so I want you know it to be everyone from the winemaker on down through the planting and cultivation. We're focusing on food insecurity. We're aligning ourselves with multiple food banks in Uco Valley, which is where Mendoza is located, and that is sort of our our, our construct. So that'll you know those things will keep me busy, you know, over the next years when I when I turn seventy, which is still a few years away. I'm hoping to hike to the Everest base camp and run a marathon down, which is an existing, it's an existing fundraiser for the Sherpa community. And I'm like, if I could be that, if I can be like that 70 year old guy who's doing that, that's going to really make, first of all, a lot of people are going to be like, could you please stop? Uh, listen, if you do that and my show's still going, will you please come back? I, I don't know. Last week on the show, we had, I don't know if you listened to it, but Jerry, who who walked from Huntington Beach to Virginia Beach, and I thought that was nuts. Or, yeah, Huntington Beach yeah. to Virginia Beach, but running down right. Everett Base Camp at age 70. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think we have to we have to push ourselves. One of the guys that I write about in the book, and I witnessed this, he was the first 100-year-old to cross the finish line of a marathon. And he, he, yes, and his name is Fauja Singe. He's now, I think, about 105 or so. He lives in Britain. And he ran his first marathon when he was 82. And 
when I watched him cross the finish line in Toronto at 100, at eight hours and 11 minutes, I might add, which is a pretty darn good, you know, time for someone who's of that, for, for anyone, I mean, for that matter, uh, just finishing, I was totally inspired because I thought, you know, I run a marathon in my 60s, I think I'm hot stuff. Well, you know, this guy is redefining and getting back to rewriting the script. You know, he's a guy that's showing us that we can do extraordinary things throughout our entire life if we don't put these self-constraints on ourselves, which we do, saying, well, I can't do this because I'm this age or I can't do this because of X, Y, Z. You just really have to open yourself up to your, your possibilities. And he was a great example of that. Michael, thank you so much. I, I We're really going to have to have you back because you have to be going into like your sixth or seventh act. So good luck with the rest of thank Roar. You. And we'll look forward to thank talking you. to you again. Thanks, Liz. It was great to be with you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.